Welcome to a very special social distancing season of Consumed, the podcast about life and flavor across California, and especially at its heart, the Central Coast. I'm Jamie Lewis. Every quarter, I publish 10 conversations I've had with eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers, but this season is a little different for obvious reasons. To keep things healthy and safe, I'm conducting interviews via Zoom. Thanks for bearing with me in this new, uncharted territory. Before we get started, I have to tell you about a recent conversation I had with my friend, James Onaveros. He's the farmer and owner of Ranchos de Onaveros and Native Nine Wines in the Santa Maria Valley, and I interviewed him in my first season. Anyway, we were talking about COVID and how much it's affecting everything in the hospitality industry, and then I said, yeah, I question whether or not I should even bother doing another season of Consumed right now, given how scary and difficult everything is. James stopped me right there and said, no, Jamie, we need these conversations now more than ever. James is a born storyteller, so I get why he thinks stories matter. But when he said he wanted to sponsor the next season of Consumed, I knew he really meant it. We need stories about our experiences, how we fell in love with food or wine or brewing or baking, and we need it right now, when so many of us have to put our passions on the back burner just to survive. So, I'm letting James and Ranchos de Anaveros help me, and I fully intend to help him. Find his exquisite Pinot Noir and Chardonnay wines at ranchosdeonaveros.com and check out his new restaurant, The Station in Los Alamos, where you can get takeout on the weekends. Find The Station at thestationlosalamos.com. And as always, Consumed is sponsored by the awesome people at Slow Life Magazine. In preparing for their first post-coronavirus issue, I've been so impressed by how resilient they are and how focused they are on the local community. I cover food for Slow Life, so it's been tricky finding a good way to write about restaurants without stressing them out. But the Slow Life editor suggested I write about farm boxes and CSAs, which is a brilliant idea while those services are going bananas with growth. The point is, Slow Life is a source of community and calm right now when we're all separated and anxiety is running maybe a little high. Look for a copy in your mailbox every other month. And if you're not already in the know, subscribe at slowlifemagazine.com. For years, I've felt lucky to know Larry Kandarian, the energy and heart behind Kandarian Organic Farms in Los Osos, California. Larry grew up in Fresno, the son of an Armenian father and Portuguese mother, both of whom come from agricultural families. And though Larry eventually moved into ag, he started in tech, working for Raytheon on space shuttles and developing what's now known as USB, which we all use nearly every day. But tech wasn't his real interest. He went on to work in seed farming and then in grasses, the family of grains. Heirloom and ancient grains are now Larry's primary focus, and he's a rock star on the international food scene because of them. Larry is an encyclopedia of agricultural knowledge, but it's his passion for grains that has captured people's culinary imaginations. You'll hear his staff buzzing behind him and the phone ringing occasionally during our interview because... That's just how popular Larry's products have become. Listen to Larry discuss the correlation between grain cultivation and human development, his new venture, Heart and Soul Farms, which he's developing with his bread brother, Guy Frankel, and his recipe for longevity stew, which I've posted on letsgetconsumed.com on his episode page. Enjoy my chat with Larry Kandarian. You are, I mean, even before this, you were driving up and down California every week, right? Still doing it every other week. This is my week to not go to Northern California. Otherwise, last Friday I, I leave at four o'clock in the morning, and I was in Monterey at the 
um, Del Monte Center setting up by uh, before seven, and that market went till two p.m. Then I would go to Campbell and stay overnight, and then go to uh, Oakland at Grand Lakes, and then do that market until two, and then go across the bridge to San Rafael, and then uh, stay in San Rafael, and then be at the Civic Center the next morning. And then at one o'clock, that one's done, and then I drive home. So next week is busy. This week, I'm farming and talking to you, and I'm pleased to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How do you balance the farming and the selling? Uh, well, you know, I have good people on the farm. Alfonso has been with me a long time, so he understands harvest and irrigation, and I don't have to be there for him to do stuff. Uh, I tell him twenty things and. 19 of them get done at least so no issues there uh and then i do the tractor work and you know we do planting we did some recent planting that you can see my posting on instagram where we planted kind of biodynamically just before the full moon and my goodness stuff came up like crazy including some tarweed that i've been trying to grow trying to grow for several years and this one came from uh peru the seed from a friend of mine who was over there and so I'm really pleased. Uh, so, you know, but everything just jumped out of the ground because of that biodynamic planting scenario. I want to go into that, but I mean, I think we need some context. Where where did you grow up? I'm going way back. That's right. <laughs> you expect me to remember that far back? I'm not sure. I thought they dropped me off at a truck here or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I grew up, I was born in Fresno and grew up in and around Fresno County. My dad was a cow milker and moved around from place to place to place. So I went to a lot of high you know, grammar schools and one high school, but a lot of grammar schools. It's San Joaquin Valley, hot. Hot, and you co- but you come from an agricultural background. My dad's family was in... Uh, truck crops initially and then uh, dried fruits and raisins especially and then my mom's side was in the dairy industry she's portuguese my dad was armenian so we grew up on milk and raisins not not a bad thing no definitely not (laughs) i was driving out to i was driving out on what was it the 46 east last weekend I mean, way out. And I saw the signs for this is a sun-made raisin grower. And I always love that. I love seeing when they they display and you can see who's growing it. Yeah, yeah. Sun-made is an old, old company uh, started in Fresno. There's many other people now, lion packing, et cetera, et cetera. But now they do it differently or uh, quite most of them do it differently where they do DOV, dried on the vine. So they put the canes in alternate rows in one year they they have the cane trimmings in one row and the other row the fruit is hanging up there and they simply go in and cut the canes and the raisins dry on the vine and they come through with a shaker or a brush thing and brush them off and they fall into a container so mm-hmm. and not touched by human hands and you know that has to do with labor and what labor costs have gone to and you know how labor gets himself worked right out of a job just like the cotton picking industry you know when I was a kid, you had a 30-foot sack, and you put stuff in the sack and drug it down the row, you know, and people would cheat and put dirt cloths and whatever the hell they could put in there because you put it on a scale at the end of the row, and 
then you got paid, I don't know, a cent and a half a pound or something. And, you know, and, and then it would start a fire in the cotton gin. And so then they got replaced by machines. Right. You so come, that, if your parents were, or if your dad especially was, it sounds like he was really in ag business on a, on a large scale. But you have really made decisions to do heirloom and small scale. I mean, even though your company, I know it's grown quite a bit, but it's still very focused on niche products and grains specifically. How did you become interested in that? Well, I think part of it's from my heritage because many of those grains are from the Fertile Crescent and the Fertile Crescent near uh, the the center of uh, the cradle of civilization, Mesopotamia, which is Iran, uh, very near uh, Armenia. And so some of the Iranian people, when I see them, they look like my brothers and sisters. <laughs> you know, we all look alike, talk alike, act alike, and we're not very tall. So, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I was just interested in those, and I wanted to get back. So that's why we went back to Einkorn, to, to the Faro. So Einkorn is the Faro Piccolo, the, the oldest, 27,000 years old, and then we go to Faro Medio, which is the Ethiopian blue tinge faro and emmer faro, 19,500 years old, and then spelt 18,000 years old. Then in the interim, we have some tap from Ethiopia and Eritrea, and then uh, uh, Korshan wheat from Korshan, Iran. So, you know, all those, I don't know, it just feels like I'm home. I, I don't know. It's just, it's a comfort. And, you know, I think in our DNA, all of that's in there, and it just came out. And it came out in 2007 or 8 or whenever the recession was, you know. And I realized I had to do something other than grow a flower seeds and, and grass seeds and herb seeds and, and uh, uh, vegetable seeds. So it know? began with that. I didn't realize that. So you began with seeds. Oh, yeah. I'm a seedy character. You're a seedy <laughs> you <know>? guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I'm a graduate mechanical engineer from Fresno State. And. So I, I have two degrees, a, a double major, one degree, um, mechanical engineering and agricultural engineering. And I had some really wonderful teachers over there, the good mentors. And when I graduated, <clears throat> I went to work for Raytheon and Oxnard because I wanted to be in aerospace. You know, I thought I was going to solve all the world's problems. I cannot picture you doing that. No, I didn't. I hated being a suit. You know, in a third-story suit, and you couldn't walk on the lawn because they would fire you. <laughs> All those stupid things. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I hated that. But the guy sat next to me, Paul. He designed the lunar rover vehicle that roved, uh, roamed on the moon in 1968. I was hired on in 1970 when I graduated, and I actually worked with a group of three or four other people on uh, what's now called the USB port. So we, we were instrumental in designing that. We called it a UUTI. I worked on the first space shuttle. It was contracted with uh, next door was Point Magoo in uh, Port Wainimi. And so we would go over there working on the computer test sets for the first space shuttle. And so I helped design the USB port. When did you, when did you decide to change over? That's a pretty big switch. When they fired Paul. They, they come around every Friday and hang out, hand out pink slips. And this guy was amazing. He sat six feet from me and a world-renowned person. They just hand him a pink slip and said, leave. We're done. You're fired. And so I thought, wow, you know, here I'm a babe in the woods, just out of college, <clears throat> going to solve all the world's problems. 
and then as soon as you get over the hill, so to speak, you're gone. And so nobody ever retired from that company, I don't think, from Raytheon Oxnard. They, you know, at the time we were laughing, saying they were making backup lights for the Israeli tanks. Because <laughs> the Israeli war. But uh, it was dumb. But we did work on the space shuttle. And then, of course, after I left the uh, Gulf War, they, they came into their own and did the smart bombs. And, you know, so... They had some electronic technology that put them in the forefront, but before I wouldn't have given you 10 cents for that company. So As you, a matter of fact, the, the moniker for Raytheon Oxnard is ROX, and we used to say they had rocks in their head. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> did you, so as soon as you left, did you have a plan to start growing? Uh, well, no. One of my professors was a bodger, B-O-D-G-E-R, and, uh, Kenneth Bodger, he's now deceased, but uh, he was a nominal partner in a seat company. And before I went into aerospace, they tried to hire me and I turned them down. And then after this uh, mess over at Raytheon Oxnard, because you had to have a charge number, you know, and nobody did anything. They just went to the coffee shops and BSed. And so then uh, I thought, man, this isn't how to do things. I, I just really disliked it. And, uh, very uncomfortable, probably had ulcers drank coffee and, and took uh, uh, Rolaids or some damn thing. I don't know. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, not, not the way I wanted to live my life. So I, I got back in touch with Kenneth, and he sent me to his cousin in El Monte, Howard Bodger, and they had a, a company that was uh, Bodger Seeds Limited, LTD. They're out of uh, England or Britain or someplace. And uh, they were one of the few holdouts that was – uh, family owned for many many years and I was there a third generation was occurring at that time they recently uh, disbanded and sold to a couple different companies and then when I was there we started a new company called ESP which is environmental seed producers and that was the years when people were getting into California natives and all they simply did was sold by Latin name and raise the price times three <laughs> and, <laughs> no, it's good marketing play. So it depended how whoever answered the phone, you had to talk in Latin, or if you, you if it was the other company <laughs> talking English, same seed. <laughs> Truth in advertising. Yeah. So, and it was a subchapter S corporation, and I actually owned one seventh of it uh, way back in 1970 through 76. And did you? When you talk about the 2007 change to growing Mediterranean heirloom grains, what was that? What inspired that change? The fact that there were no housing starts because of the bank uh, failures. And so you couldn't uh, give away flower seeds. Uh, Burpee, uh, who used to grow next to us at, on the uh, Turi Farm Ranch, they always had flowers there. Uh, and even the Highland Ranch had sweet peas right down the street. Um, uh, Don Warden and his family uh, always had flowers growing. And after that, there has been zero flowers since 2007. And so, you know, you couldn't give stuff away that you were selling for high prices. And so I thought, well, and, and I was in the grass seed business, too, as well, with another company in Los Alamos. And they they were doing revegetation, but... You know, it had switched because they'd made millions and millions of dollars re-vegetating for uh, poor 
forest fires, you know, uh, re reclaiming the forest areas. And finally, the Forest Service uh, decided they weren't going to do that anymore because too many people were cheating and putting European grasses on the airplanes and flying this stuff, you know, by a million dollars a load, dropping seeds all over the damn place. And they were planting it with European ryegrass because it was cheap. And the seed is a seed is a seed. They all look the same. So, you know, they people cheat and... Is it no different than those cotton pickers way back that I talked to you? <laughs> so they yeah. talked themselves right out of a job. Yeah. And so that went to hell. And so all those sales declined. So now you had to be really precise in what you were doing. And I knew how to grow flowers, vegetables, herbs, grasses. And so, you know, the grains are grasses. And the definition of a grain is just the seed in the grass family that we eat. Done, done deal, and none of them are poisonous. So, you know, you can make bread out of foxtails. Wow, have you done that, Larry? No, but a guy could do it. My friend, the guy Franco, would do it because we just grind them up and then screen out the chaff and do it. It would make a flat bread like chaff. So, with your Armenian upbringing, and what did you say your mom was? Portuguese. Portuguese. What kind of food did you eat as a kid? Oh, man, a lot of shish kebab. Really? <laughs> and beans and fish and milk and cheese. Yeah. Did you and eat Portuguese, it? The Portuguese do a lot of uh, uh, cabbage soups, you know, stuff like that, and, and beans, uh, pink beans at the time. So ate a lot of beans, hated beans, and now I love them. Sure. <laughs> I have your yeah. black bean. Is it black bean and farro? Uh, yeah, 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 or black bean and barley, yeah. That's what it is, and we made it, and I, I if it's okay with you, I'm going to share it on my website because, oh, sure. it, okay, because it's so amazing, I can't, I think it's a vegan soup, or at least yeah, you can yeah. make it vegan pretty easily. Yeah. yeah, you can, yeah. But it has so, so much flavor, you ask for so many spices and herbs, and it's this really precise combination that works we were amazed it was just delicious thank you for that i appreciate it so much yeah so you've learned so much about the history of these grains and i love i've always believed that um civilization follows the agriculture around grains i think it's just a very parallel um, history. So talk to me a bit about the grains that you sell and where they come from and um and how you use them. Well, I think the most important one is einkorn, the petite faro, which is was called einkorn that was named by the Germans and I don't know how they got into the game, but ein means one and so it has one grain per little head there, a little part of the head. Um, and um, it's um, it's called triticum monococum and petite faro, faro piccolo, or einkorn. Those are all the different names. But it came from the Fertile Crescent. And, you know, in, in times, um, uh, Paleolithic times, um, people were walking and collecting berries and different things. And I don't know if they ever got any animals or not, but <clears throat> I'm here to tell you, if I was walking along and saw these grain heads, I'd sure as hell be eating them. And <clears throat> the proof is in the pudding. They have found those uh, in fossils in people's teeth. Uh, and they found einkorn in there. So uh, what happened, that was 27,000 years ago. So flash forward uh, 15,000 years to 12,000 years ago, the Neolithic times, 
and then people came together along the uh, Tigris and Euphrates, the Fertile Crescent, had water and decided to grow these things. And uh, so civilization and um, the cradle of civilization and, and us living together in community with all the problems, the, the getting rid of the, the excrement and the waste from the uh, uh, cooking, whatever was left over, and uh, water issues and all that uh, happened, and, and communication, because people sat around the campfires and they talked and they mid-rash stories and you know, and so the reason you and I are able to talk to each other is because of einkorn. Without einkorn, we wouldn't be talking. We'd still be hunting and gathering. So it's really important. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I love that. I really love the thought that agriculture is what helped us. It, it's what made communication possible. Um, it's what civilizes people. That's one of the most important things I think people can understand about food is it's not just sustenance. It's actually, it's our advancement as people. Um, and, you know, technology today, it all stems back to that not being nomadic. Yeah, it, it certainly does. And so, you know, that was the game changer at 12,000 years ago. You know, and uh, and then of course sitting together and breaking bread together is just phenomenal. So there's there's a bond that is undeniable when that happens. Did you ever have you ever been to the Fertile Crescent? No, I want to go, but I haven't been there yet. Because you're too busy farming grains. Yeah, but some I wanted to go with my younger daughter Adele because uh, we can the Armenian people will let you go for six weeks free and pay you all your way and all that because of the bloodlines. So wow. I think what they're trying to do is get young Armenian women from the United States to meet Armenian men over there to increase their bloodline. So I don't know. And then you pull up and they're like, wait. <laughs> yeah, what's this guy? <laughs> um, yeah. So you sell, you uh, cultivate and sell so many different varieties. Can you list off some of the ones that, um, you know, some of your flagship grains, but then also some of the new ones? Yeah, so what we do, you know, a lot of these we've started from uh, the seed banks of the United States, the seed repositories, and we've started with a very few seeds, but we have all the farro, so I told you before, I'll say it again, so einkorn, emmer farro, Ethiopian blue tinge farro, spelt, okay, and then we go into coarse on wheat and teff, but in amongst those, there's many flavors of teff, because I just had an inquiry for 3,000 pounds of teff flour, but they want an ivory teff. Well, I grow a brown teff, you know, but I can grow the ivory one, but I don't have. The same with the Coruscant. We've had people say, well, do you have any Coruscant that came from the Caucasus? Well, yeah, I do, and I'm going to be planting those probably tomorrow or the next day, <laughs> seriously, or Monday latest. Um, I have little amounts of those, and, and I want to see if they differ. I, I don't think they're going to differ much, just, you know, uh, kind of un unnoticeable changes, but but their heritage is important yeah. and then then we do some other grains like sonora white wheat sonora came from sonora mexico and it's the reason the civil war persisted because both sides were eating the same grain that was the only grain we had so if one had an inferior grain one would have had an advantage so it not only in civilization but in war it plays out so that's so <laughs> interesting that was the only grain they had 
Yeah, yeah, and, and then then when uh, Borlaug came along in the 1940s, this is you know 1700 Civil War, it was I, 1850 or something, and then uh, Borlaug in 1940 started working in in Simit, Mexico, uh, with a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation, and then he bred some wheats and he used Sonora. I think he came up with the first um, Yucoro Rojo type grain. Uh, which is uh, 3x the yield. So he got a 3x increase in yield and saved three and a quarter billion people in the world because of that. Yeah. The Sonoran um, white winter wheat, uh, I, I can't remember if it was you. Somebody else gave me a bag of it. It makes the best pancakes. The oh, best. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pancakes and also um, uh, croissants. Well, really sure. Yeah, <laughs> our buddy yeah. down in uh, in Los Osos, the uh, Panuel Bakery. Those croissants yeah. are something else. Yeah, and that's Sonora based. Yeah, and sure. it's from you, right? Well, it used to be. They're getting some from somebody in Bakersfield now, I think. But I haven't. I never had enough for them, you know, because they do small amounts. But I do have two fields right now, and we have some in in the building right now that I'm speaking to you from, and also a field growing that's about. 14 inches tall be be bolting pretty soon going reproductive with doing the kinds of grains that you do and going to the seed bank and trying new things in in the ground in los osos you've probably had a lot of um you know testing failures can you tell me about some of those uh you know actually not that many i think one of the ones that uh, uh, there's two that i can recall one is pygambari wheat from the indus valley of india and it's also called shot wheat because it's a uh, triticum spherococum a little round thing it looks like a bb and uh, they call it shot wheat and it doesn't seem to be happy here uh, i want to do it again and i think i have some samples in my stuff from the seed banks that come from different places and those will go in pretty soon to see but that one has been a little bit difficult and uh disappointing to me because i thought i could do it and and i can't and i never give up so i just keep trying <laughs> and then the other one is um uh, uh it's a hard red winter wheat but it's called turkey red and it's an ancient one that goes back 18,000 years as well from Turkey. And I had somebody give me some seed from the Ukraine last year, and it failed too. So uh, I, I, those are two. But, you know, most typically some of those will go. I plant at way different times of the year. Like I can plant Coruscant wheat in, in July and, or August and still harvest by December where you know most of the grain people they're done by july and if they put grain in the ground they aren't going to do it till the november thanksgiving and they come around the next year but i can get two crops in, in, in a year here is that because of climate here it is it's not because of me it's not because you have some climate. magical ability no, no it's a terroir there yeah. you go yeah <laughs> what about inputs on these grains i know you want you were going to talk about um farming biodynamically do you, are you using a lot of water? Do you not need to use a lot of water? What kind of fertilization process do you do? I don't do any fertilization. We we have two sets of uh, crops here. We have the, the green things like the beans that you've eaten, 
in, in the green bags and we call those are all legumes so those are our feeders and then the grains and the fibrous root system things we call those the eaters so we plant feeders at one time and then come back with an eater later so right now for example we're harvesting our lentils and um, peas and fenugreek all our legumes and we'll grow through the frost they're going to be followed by a purple Peruvian corn and the feeders will have fed the corn so there's no nitrogen or anything needed so just finding the balance over time dynamically finding that balance yeah, and you know, and, and playing with it and fine tuning it, and then what we do is we grow like polyculture. So we'll let the weeds grow; they're part of the polyculture because all those roots are underneath there making deals. And then I plant in a little V slot, so I use some geometry such that the seeds I planted are down lower, and then the weed seeds are up on a high ground. And then as the crop gets big enough, I pull a drag over the top of it, and that kind of does a haircut to the weeds that would be competing for sunlight and gives my crops the advantage and then they outgrow the other ones and the other ones are put in the shade mm. so it's pretty neat and then but the roots are all communicating and trading with each other you know one uh picris for example a, a weed uh, prickly ox tongue a nasty weed here you know it'll trade from its sequence secretes from the root hairs and they're secreting and making deals with the other things and so everybody under there is sharing and we have some leguminous weeds as well uh, like some clovers and birdfoot trefoil and stuff like that and we just try to keep them so they're not competing for sunlight so much yeah you know it's a trick and then then now we're incorporating animals now that we're working with heart and soil farms because Heart and Soil is a sociocratic group that's coming together with their seven of us that formed this LLC, and uh, they're farming trees. So we have tree rows every uh, 60 feet on the farm. So we have agroforestry. Some of those will put things in the shade so we can grow mushrooms under the trees. Uh, you know, lots of different crops will be coming out, uh, and seed crops as well that we'll be selling special kinds of beans and uh grains that are just small amounts and we will sell those through a seed company um, by francisco uh, uh on on the website that's being um, made up by guy frankel the bread baker from los angeles who does amazing stuff yeah I, so i saw the heart and soil project which is really new i think right it is it's uh-huh. so Help me to understand, It's is it a physical space? It's a physical farm that you all seven have some say over? Uh, we all agree by consent, not by consensus. So, you know, four out of seven of us can't make a decision. Seven out of seven make the decision. And there's some land uh, on my farm uh, that that they farm and and they have a lease on some for up to 20 years for the trees and some for three to five years depending on what we're doing and uh so for example we're growing peppers for a company in tunisia and uh, they were started they're just germinated today as a matter of fact the first ones and they will go in a small acreage and we will pick those and and the people in los angeles will come and pick them up uh fresh you know red peppers and then put them in their tunisian sauce um we're also doing mushrooms with john richardson 
who ran the Blue Heron Farms. Yeah. So he's doing oyster mushrooms, and he told me he will be ready to go by the end of next week. He has the spawn house complete, ready to go. That's on my property. And then we have some hoop houses that he will put in the shade, you know, make, make it dark in there to grow the mushrooms. Also, we have hoop houses. Um, they're called uh, high tunnels. And we have two right now, a 50-footer by 14 and a, and a 100-footer by 14. And then I, I personally bought two more 100-footers by 14. And then we have uh, 35 inland rice varieties from all over the world that we've started in. They should be on my Instagram uh, today sometime. Um, they're, they're up to three inches tall now. They were planted two weeks ago this Sunday. And, um, you know, we want to grow those. You can grow them side by side. They don't cross. So we'll select the seed from those. I will clean it. We'll put it in uh, small packages of uh, 40 seeds each and sell them through Heart and Soil Farms. The idea is that then people in Los Angeles and the warmer climes, not necessarily, possibly San Luis, but not definitely not Morro Bay or, or, or Baywood or Los Osos, could grow these rices in their backyard gardens and then process them. And we will teach people how to do that with an online video, YouTube thing or something. So the and, mission and, is, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, so, so they would be able to grow their own rices just like they're growing uh, uh, um, turnips or, or uh, radishes or uh, tomatoes in their backyard. In so it's, it's going to be, you know, backyard culinary gardener uh, comfortable. That's great. That's such a great idea. How do you have the energy to do all of this? I mean... I'm thinking about all the farmers markets that you do. I know you have a good team, but also I would imagine this takes so much research and so much coordination on the phone, on email. Um, what's your strategy for having enough time and energy to do all of that? I could open my shirt a little further. Maybe you could see the red S here. The only thing that gets me is kryptonite. <laughs> I love that you admit that because that's what we all think. <laughs> so no, I just, you know, uh, life is short. There's a lot of things that need to get done. And so I just want to get it done. And when you surround yourself with good people, you know, if you want to go far, you go together. If you want to go fast, you go alone. So um, I'm choosing to go together and having these younger people come and learn from me and developing things that I can't develop myself. I can't do all this social media stuff. And put all this stuff in these bags but i sure as hell can get on the tractor and farm and know what to do and then talk to people like you so you know i know what i'm talking about yeah i think of you as somebody who says yes to opportunity you know something comes along or even at the farmer's market when somebody comes and stops and talks to you you always have time to discuss um what you're about what you're farming what it means i mean with with some with some people, you get the impression that they're doing something just because it kind of happened to them. But with you, it feels like, and with so many people I get to talk to, it feels like you're doing it for something, a deeper reason. Um, and to choose to farm, um, you know, centuries old grains is a conscious decision. It doesn't just happen to you. You just, you know, do it like. Yeah, no, it, it didn't just happen. And it's part of the passion. And, and I don't want to be in that other crowd. You know, I don't want to be part of that. I, I, I get fed so much. My soul gets replenished when I go down to Santa Monica, for example, and I have 
we used to be able to have people in the tent. No, we used to have people from four continents in the tent at one time. You know, and just sharing and enjoying and loving and and, and no borders. You know, and so um, yeah. I, I'm I'm kind of an anarchist. I, I don't know that we need to be the United States of America. We need to be the United World. And uh, right now, the virus is kind of promulgating that. So. Um, there's a lot of good going to come out of that. I see an awful lot more kindness than I've ever seen. Uh, so, yeah, I, it is what it is. I like doing what I'm doing. I want to continue doing it, but I don't, I don't want to stop. There's lots more to do. So these rices, it's imperative that we get these out to people because patty rice has um, arsenic in it, and these rices will not because they're inland rices. Mm -hmm. So when you put the Earth's crust underwater, arsenic comes up as a heavy metal and goes into the rice stems up to the seed head. And then over years, if you don't do it like the Asian grandmothers did and, you know, soak and rinse and soak and rinse and soak and rinse, and you just go buy a rice cooker from Costco and dump this stuff in, <clears throat> you're gonna lose your sense of smell over time. Um, so it's, yeah. That would be me then. <laughs> well. well. I should be eating your rice and all of your grains for every meal, but I admit, especially with what happened in the past two months, I bought the big bag of white rice. And Well, that's okay, but just rinse it and soak it and rinse it and soak it. You know, it has three things in it. It has the lectins on the skin, it has phytic acid, and it has arsenic, and they're mainly on the skin. So if you soak and rinse and soak and rinse and even do that with some apple cider vinegar, that'll help diminish the, the 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 weight of the bullet that's coming at you. <laughs> well said, and it makes me feel yeah. not so bad. Larry, I don't know if you're open to telling me about this, but I'll ask anyway. Do you have a faith or a spiritual practice? Uh, yes, it's called the universe. Tell me yeah, about that. I, well, I you know, when I read Stephen Hawking's book, um, I just, you know, I know he got spiritual in that last millisecond trying to figure out how the Big Bang occurred, but it's no different than a guy hitting a foul ball, foul ball over the the stand, you know. So Earth, I don't know how it got created, but it did. And here we are on this Goldilocks planet, and we need to give thanks for that because there's, I mean, Elon can take his group to Mars and have a hell of a good time, but I don't know what the hell they're going to breathe. <laughs> or do <laughs> yeah or do that's right I mean I guess you can grow potatoes up there like that movie Mars but <laughs> that's so fun uh, so yeah we have a lot of benefits here and we need to utilize them and and that's the faith is that this uh, wonderful wonder filled place is here and we reside on it and you know, I, I hearken back to the blue-green algae that is responsible for all the plants on Earth because they combined only once in billions of years with, um, oh, I forgot what plant, it, it was an animal, and, and they coexisted, and when the animal divided, um, I think it was a plankton or something, I can't remember where it was. Darn it, I'm missing it now. But but it became now is a chloroplast and is responsible for plants being on Earth. But initially, blue-green algae, and you can see it in the Back Bay and Morro Bay, if you go out low tide, 
and you look into one of those tide pools and you see bubbles coming up, that's the blue-green algae, and it's taking in CO2 and giving off O2. And so that O2 is what changed our, our atmosphere from one that was filled with SO2 that was handled by allegedly the lizards, the dinosaurs that I'm not sure were cold-blooded, but I guess could handle that stinky rotten egg smell better than we could. And so now with the blue-green algae, you know, we've, it's changed our, our, um, the architecture of the earth and, and then with the trees. And if all that goes to hell in a handbasket with, with us not doing enough carbon sequestration and putting more carbon in the ground, and the earth does go where it gets overwrought and it's the straw that breaks the camel's back and the the arctic area melts and then we get even more carbon because there's a lot of stuff in that ice that is not going up as carbon so then if that did melt and it went up as carbon now we've got more carbon in the air and then more greenhouse effects so it's really serious i would uh, definitely like to see, see Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, speak more about that. Uh, he doesn't seem to want to talk much about that, and it's very disappointing to me. Him and Stephen Hawking's, um, you know, have a really good handle on what our Earth needs, and for him to not be in Congress every day talking to the people about what the hell we need to do to clean up all this stuff that's going on that's wrecking the Earth, because the Earth's going to live, but we won't. And it's not going to be green, and we won't be here. Mm. I want my grandchildren to be here. This is a beautiful island that we inhabit in outer space. <laughs> yes. I heard once um, a Christian philosopher said um, that the key to gratitude every day is to remember that we are spinning on an obscure rock in a backwater of the universe. I've always yeah. loved that because it really does give you gratitude for the fact that we exist at all. Yeah, we're like little ants on this little speck of dirt that's flying through space, spinning at 1,000 miles an hour and hurtling through space at 10,000 miles an hour. Right. Um, I, you are so integrated with chefs, with purveyors all over. I've told you so many times, I'm going to say it again because these people haven't heard it, but I was traveling in Boston with my family and we always, I know you're already cracking up, like, please don't tell this story again. Um, I, I, when, whenever we travel, I drive my family crazy by making a pilgrimage to some place that I've always wanted to go to eat. So we went to Sofra in uh, Cambridge, and yes. it's Mediterranean food, best shakshuka I have ever had. Um, but it was, you know, they have kind of like a little uh, retail area, and I was walking around, and there's Kandarian Farms, Ethiopian Tef, uh, sorry, Ethi yeah, that's right. Isn't that right? Well, it was Blue Tinge Faro, I think. Sorry, yes, Blue Tinge Faro. Up on the shelf, I just about lost my mind. You're everywhere. Well, there's, you know, we're we're known uh, around the world, and I have to give that thanks to Guy Frankel, who's the best artisan bread maker in the world, and he started the uh, Facebook group. Uh, I don't remember how many years ago, maybe eight or nine, uh, called Perfect Sourdough, and they had I think 800 members. They're now 80,000 members mm -hmm. worldwide. And so when he bakes and posts, uh, he is the best artisan bread maker in the world. When he posts 
who generally has me included in there and some of my labels. So people know me all over. So it's not me. It's because of other people that know of me. So, um, and I'm very appreciative of that. You know, I call him my bread brother. I have a blood brother and I have a botanical brother. <laughs> and my blood brother and I don't hardly talk except at reunions. But um, my botanical brother and my bread brother, we talk every Thursday night. They're both part of the sociocratic group. Cool. So when you meet all these people, um, I'm curious, how do you eat? What's for dinner tonight? Um, it's always the same. It's longevity stew, which is uh, um, local and seasonal. So I start with the bone broth of sorts and sometimes vegetable broth, but always organic. And then mushrooms, my my soup de jour, so to speak. And then um, cactus, nopalis. And then whatever grains I want to put in or beans or vegetables, you know, sometimes celeriac, sometimes uh cabbage you know depending depending what's going on and at the time of year it is you know could be shiote squash and there's 72 ingredients but they always change and you could google that on uh civil eats they did an article on me a couple years ago it's called farmer longevity stew through civil eats the electronic magazine and the person who did it sat in the trailer with me and i cooked the stuff and we sat and ate it <laughs> it only had like 21 ingredients in. <laughs> oh, is that all that time? 21, yeah, huh? Just one. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like it's working, Larry. Yeah, well, you know, and that was, I should tell you the story about what caused me to do that. I, I saw a movie called Tangerines, and I forget who the person who directed that was, but he has some other credits that are world-renowned. And it was about the... Warring factions in um, Israel and and uh, the uh, Palestine, and there was a wall and, and you know fence or something, and these guys had some tangerines and they were trying to market them, and and of course there's war going on outside, and this one man was very filled with gratitude and and tried to help humanity, so he brought wounded warriors in from both sides and actually had to keep them in locked bedrooms because they wanted to kill each other with knives under mm. the doors and stuff. But he always fed them off a wood stove with this longevity stew that he had. He always had it on the stove, and I thought, hell, if they can do it, I can do it. So I've been doing it. <laughs> How long I mean. have you been eating that? Uh, for about four years, five years. My goodness. Yeah. I'm going to look that up. I'm going to share it with people who listen to this because if we could all stand to have a little more longevity stew in our diet. Yeah, yeah, and and you know the the longevity part I think comes from your attitude because your attitude determines your altitude and your attitude determines your health because we're psychosoma, you know. Yeah, we're made of two parts, the top and the bottom. <laughs> Let me ask you: it, you may have already answered this, but if you were going to die tomorrow and you knew it, what would you eat today? For sure, mushrooms. <laughs> And I would give thanks to Paul Stamets <laughs> from the Fantastic Fungi movie. I loved that movie. I loved yeah, and, that movie. Yeah, and so John Richardson, who is doing the the uh, oyster mushrooms for us, he studied under Paul Stamets, so he knows what he's doing. Wow, that's amazing. Fangirl yeah. moment. <laughs> Larry... I just think you're the best, and I really appreciate you taking time. I mean, you've got people buzzing around behind you because everybody's so busy, but you took 45 minutes out with me, and I appreciate that. 
Well, it's a really good 45 minutes. I mean, this has been um, like a, a yoga uh, experience for me. Thank you so very much. I've Thank always you. enjoyed you. Love you to pieces and your beautiful family. Thank you, Larry. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Consumed as always. I'm so glad you joined me. Consumed is produced by me, Jamie Lewis, and edited by Chris Lambert. If you want to get all kinds of tidbits like recipes, updates on guests, and new seasons, join the Consumed mailing list at letsgetconsumed.com or follow me on Instagram at J-A-I-M-E-C-L-E-W-I-S. Until next season, wear your mask, wash your hands, cook dinner, send letters to your loved ones, support your local purveyors, and make a budget for takeout. Every little bit helps. Take care, everyone.